while our kids are leaving, if uh, I could invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17 and 18 and the first part of 19, actually just start with Revelation 17 and while you're opening, if I could uh, just make one brief announcement and that is for those of you who are interested in uh, attending our 2012 tour to Israel, which is Egypt, then Jordan, and then ending in Jerusalem, there is an informational, short informational meeting uh, following the second service in this room to my left, our coffee room. So if you're interested, even if you haven't signed up and you just want to kind of get an idea of what we're going to do, then I'll invite you to stay after and we'll give you a little more information. Having said that, um, for a lot of people, this book, the final book of the Bible is, is complex and sometimes overwhelming with all of its images of dragons and beasts and brides and horns and so forth. And, um, and yet at the same time, I believe that once we understand them, the images can be very potent and powerful. At least I, I know that's how they've functioned in my heart. And I think in many respects, they can be more potent and powerful than, than just a propositional statement which is one of the reasons that we have been um, in this series focusing on this final book of the Bible. We come to a vision, one of the final visions of this book, that extends over two and a half chapters. Now let me just say that, that there is a time in which to stop and, and go over one verse in a message. And then there are other times to get the big sweeping picture, you have to kind of take it as a whole, which means you can't look at all the parts. So I want to give you a, 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 a picture of the whole, which again, as I said, is two chapters, two and a half. It goes from 17.1 to 19, verse 4. And it is a, a vision of a great harlot or prostitute, depending on your translation. Now, I timed myself reading through it all, and it takes me six and a half minutes. So I'm not going to read it all. But let me just give you the contours of it, so you'll be able to understand at least kind of the framework of it. The, John is, the Apostle John is caught up in a vision of verse 1 of 17, and this is what he sees. An angel comes and says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So he's going to have a vision of the prostitute, and the next seven verses is a description of her. So verses 1 through 7 of chapter 17 describe this prostitute. Beginning in verse 8, John gives us an interpretation of that prostitute and a beast upon which she rides. That's the image of a harlot riding a beast. And quite honestly, his interpretation is difficult to understand. But that nevertheless is the interpretation, verses 8 through 18. And the entirety of chapter 18 is given to her demise or her destruction. Then an angel comes from heaven and says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. So almost all of chapter 18 is given to her destruction. And the people on earth in response to this prostitute, whatever she may be, his destruction is mourning and weeping. We read that the kings of the earth, verse 9 of 18, chapter 18, the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality, um, and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. We see in verse 11, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her. We read down in verse 
17, that all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all those who trade on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. So people who dwell on earth will mourn and wail. Kings and merchants and sailors will mourn at her demise. But heaven rejoices, and that's how the vision ends. Because we come to chapter 19, verse 2, and we see the multitudes in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So she is described, chapter 17, 1 through 7, interpreted, verses 8 through 18, her demise is declared and seen in chapter 18, along with the earth's mourning, and then in chapter 19, we see her destroyed. Now let me pray. Father, I just ask in these moments you, we have with you, just ask that you would give us the attention and give us the minds to understand your truth in a way that will stir within us a greater faithfulness to our Lord Jesus Christ and know that he reigns, he rules, and he is our conquering king and groom. I pray for this church family here that you would, you would speak to each person what you need them or want them to hear and what they need to hear. Lord, I pray that you would give me the, the wisdom to tread the balance between giving your people confidence that you have written their names in your book from the foundation of the world, which means they are secure, which I need and we need to know at the same time that you have given these warnings in Scripture that are meant to stir up, to spur us on, and to call us to examine ourselves. And I, I pray that you would, you would accomplish that balance, Lord, through me. We just want to be nourished. We want to hear your word. We want to have our hearts stirred towards Christ. So I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know some of you are probably tired of, of me recapping where we have been, but there are people who, who don't come and then come, or some of you are new and you're wondering, what in the world is happening? I just heard some things about prostitutes and, and what is going on here. So let me just kind of for your sake, just tell you where we've been. We have been focusing as a congregation on the future, on the end itself. Um, in fact, the entire thesis and the entire purpose of this whole series is one thing, and that is to show us that everything in the Bible flows to the end. And if we as God's people, as we gather for worship, are not longing and and hoping for that end, then all we're doing in here is just trying to adorn this life. That's it. That we are to be forward living, forward anticipating and hoping people because our home is not here, it's future. That's the whole purpose of this, this, this message series. And I cannot overstate the importance of the future. But we have side, uh, well, sidestepped all of the controversies over what precedes the end, like at what time and where do these things fall in line, and we're focusing on the end itself. And where we have been is we have looked at judgment. We have looked at the judgment in both of its dimensions, the judgment of the believer, which ends in eternal joy, and the, the judgment of the unbeliever that ends in eternal condemnation. And then over the last three weeks, we have looked at what constitutes our final home and future. What should we long for? What is our home? 
And it consists of a place, a people, and most importantly, the presence of God. That it will be a very real place, the new earth. That it will be filled with a glorified, resurrected, and exalted people, the redeemed, those who have trusted. And ultimately and finally, we will reflect and we will embody the very presence directly of God himself and of the Lamb. The presence of God will dwell amongst his people forever and ever and ever. That is home. And that is what we are to fix our hope on and yearn for and long to be. Now, some may ask at this point, having looked at that, what practical value does that have to my life today? Like, what is the relevance of the future to the present? And these next three messages are given to answer that question. What is the present power of hope that it should have in the life of God's people, of Christians, those who have the Spirit of God living in them, who do long for home? If you have the Spirit, there is some longing. I'm hoping to nurture that, and we're hoping to nurture that as we look at God's, God's Word together. But that is the question. How does the future relate to the present? Does it at all, or is it just irrelevant. So the next three messages, this one and two, is going to be given to answer that question. Why is it important for today? Beginning with the most important reason why hope is important. Namely this, and this is the simple and single statement and purpose of this message. That is, our hope should inspire within us greater loyalty and faithfulness in our love to Jesus. It should inspire a fidelity in our love for him as our king and as our, as our groom. Uh, in the words of 1 John 3, verse 3, that this hope should purify within us a holy love for the one who gave his life for us and to whom we should long to be in the presence of. Or... You could look at it in the negative. Not only should it create us, a motivate a, a fidelity in our love for him, but it should also, on the opposite side, negatively inspire us to turn our backs on anything that would compete with our exclusive love for our king. So in short, it should inspire faithfulness to Jesus in the present. And I believe this vision does just that. The vision of chapter 17, 18, and first part of 19. Now, as I said, this is a vision of Babylon the prostitute. She goes by the name of Babylon. And since we only have a few moments, what I am going to do in looking at this vision is I am simply going to lay out for you five, let's call them interpretive statements as to what this vision is. And I'm asking you to use your minds because... By the time we get to the end, I think it will be potent and powerful for those of you who have ears to hear. So five interpretive statements as to who this prostitute is that God in his providence took two and a half chapters of the Bible to give us. First statement or interpretive statement. That the prostitute that is spoken of in these two and a half chapters is the satanic counterpart to the bride of the Lamb. That is, here you come to the very end of the Bible, and there are two visions of two women right next to each other. Last week, we looked at the vision of a woman who is the bride of the Lamb. 
That's chapter 21 into chapter 22. That John sees the new Jerusalem descending from heaven and she is adorned and prepared as a bride for the groom. And that groom is the lamb. And as outlined last week, that is, New Jerusalem is not a city, it is a people. The bride has always been a people. So it's a vision of the bride of Christ adorned and glorified, radiating his glory, and um, in whom the glory of God inhabits and indwells. So that's the woman of chapter 21 and 22. We come to this chapter and we're introduced yet to a different woman who also goes by the name of an ancient city. So we read, I'll read the text, back in verse 1 of 17, then one of the seven angels who had come, who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned, there's a word we've seen in chapter 21, with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, I believe it's unmistakable and indisputable that John intended us to see a tremendous contrast between these two women. The woman of chapter 21 and 22 is a bride adorned with the glory of Christ. The woman here is called a prostitute. Not a bride, but a prostitute. Both women go by the name of Cities, ancient cities. The prostitute is called ancient Babylon, Babylon the Great, existed in antiquity. And the bride of Christ is called the New Jerusalem, the historical city where the presence of God dwelt. But we read in this text that describes her as being adorned, we read that she has a particular relationship to this thing that she's writing, and I know it seems, again, complex and overwhelming, but he sees her as this prostitute riding a beast, indicating close relationship. Back in chapter 13 and 12, which we don't have time to go back to, we learn that the beast is the earthly wielding of satanic authority. That is, he is the face, the powerful beastly face of the dragon, who is understood in Scripture as the devil himself. So the beast represents to us um, anti-Christian wielding of state authority and power. And the harlot is riding it, which means she's distinct but aligned. What's equally interesting is that all three of these images of dragon of chapter 12 and the beast of, described here and the harlot are all dressed in red or scarlet. In other words, they're all part of this satanic entourage that takes its aim against God's people and ultimately the throne of God himself. But the point I want you to see here is that this is, this prostitute is the satanic counterpart of the Lamb's heavenly bride. So that's what's to be seen. Now, some of them understood this, this 
prostitute to be the apostate church, which is just a fancy way of saying a church that has stopped worshiping Christ and in essence worshiped other things. Now we're told in the scripture that there is an apostasy. But the evidence of Revelation would suggest that while it will include a segment of the church that has adulterated herself, it also includes other things. That It's an amalgam of things, of, of economic influence tied with religious influence, which would include with it social structures and culture. Now, if you don't get that, I'll come back to it in a moment. Point being, this prostitute is the counterpart, satanic at the core of the bride of the lamb. That's statement number one. Statement number two. As such, the prostitute delights in, and I chose this word carefully, it's vivid, I know, and graphic. But it's what comes to light in the text itself. That the prostitute delights in mutilating the bride of the lamb. As you find her, right after she's described in her beauty, adorned with jewels and pearls and scarlet and so forth, we read this text. That, and I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints. Those are God's people. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. The picture is of this prostitute having this, this cup full of the blood of God's people, the bride of the Lamb. In other words, she is delighting and rejoicing over the destruction of God's people. So she delights in seeing God's people killed and destroyed. It's as if she's enjoying a party while God's church is being crushed. Now, if you were, again, this is graphic, but it fits the image. You husbands out there, if you saw somebody holding a, a glass full of the blood of your beloved wife, how would you feel? I'll come back to that in a moment. What this tells us is that she is the enemy of God's people. She is your enemy, and she is my enemy. And she delights to see God's people destroyed. That's point number two. She's your enemy. So she's the satanic counterpart of the bride, the glorious bride adorned and prepared for Christ. And also, she is here one who's delighting in the mutilation of the bride, which brings us to the third point which is how she does her destructive work. That is, the prostitute seduces the people of the earth with her sensualities and her wealth. Sensuality and wealth. Now, let me try and make this as simple as possible so as not to overcomplicate it. In our common understanding of, of animals and city life, a beast by nature is something that kills and destroys. A lion tears apart and kills physically. We also know by common, not hopefully not firsthand experience, that prostitutes don't work that way. Their whole angle is to dress up nice and provide an alluring, attractive outward look that causes people to want her. It's seductive. Beast destroys. Harlot seduces. That's why she's riding on this beast. They are compliments to one another. And as a little bit of an aside, this is how 
The devil, the dragon, Satan has worked throughout history. These are his two, two primary ways to both delude the earth and attack God's people. Physical persecution and destruction by the beast, a.k.a. state authority, run amok, killing people. Or, and, seduction. That's how he works. Those are the two primary ways he attacks. Beast, prostitute. She's described as a prostitute. Verse 4, the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. She's gorgeous. She's dropped dead. People want her. That's why she's described with such amazing descriptions. In other words, she would be found on the cover of Cosmopolitan or Allure. She would make you want to buy the magazine because she's beautiful. And that's the point. And that's how she works. Is that she holds forth a sense of pleasure, a want. It pulls out something in fallen man that makes us want her. And as a result of wanting her and her beauty and her seduction, we read in chapter 18 that all nations, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And all the nations have drunk her cup. The kings and merchants, as everybody has, and just to be clear, this may seem a bit crude, but I need to clarify this. This is not talking about physical adultery. It's physically impossible for all nations, kings, and so forth to do that. What's being spoken of here is something that is spoken of throughout the Bible, namely spiritual idolatry or prostitution. In the Old Testament, when, people, when God's people, Israel, would be enticed either by a God who promised to give them better crops to go and worship at a different altar, it was called prostitution. Because God's relationship with his people is supposed to be one that's monogamous. There's to be no other God before God's people. The covenant is between God and his people and no one else. No other gods are to be worshipped. And any worship outside of God is considered this thing called sexual immorality or harlotry or prostitution which gives it a very personal center in terms of the nations prostituting themselves with this prostitute against the living God. So that's what's at stake in this prostitution. What she uses to do that, and it's shown over and over and over again in chapter 18, are two primary things. Pleasure and wealth. Pleasure and wealth. So we read, Chapter 18, verse 9, talking about the kings of the earth, that the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. 1811, and the merchants, not only the kings who have committed this act of spiritual idolatry, but also the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn for her since no one buys. Now there's a There's a buying, selling, there's a material exchange capitalism here. 
buys their cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, oil, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. Just keep going on and on. And she entices the world with her wealth. The kings loved her luxury. The merchants loved to trade with her. And everybody's sad when she disappears because their hearts are tied to these things. Not just the kings and the merchants, but also the sailors, all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What a city. What city was great like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and as they wept and mourned, cried out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. That when she dies, when she's destroyed, the entirety of humanity, all the nations, the king, the merchants, and the sailors weep because they no longer have the pleasure of indulging in her wealth. It sounds not unlike the mourning of our current economic state around the world. We've lost it, which is why people are depressed They don't have the joy of the Lord because their hearts have been tied to this thing we call wealth and luxury, which brings pleasure. Now, just to be clear again, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth. God created gold. He created silver. He created wives and husbands. He created children. He created the ground. He created wood and spices and cinnamon. But what this prostitute does is she hijacks God's good gifts And she seduces people to worship the creation and not the creator. So we worship these things and tie our hearts on these things that God has created. And they become the object of our worship. And she draws people away in this this manner. Rather than recognizing that God is the fountain of all that is good. He is the living God. Everything that he's created is by him and for him. And everything we have for a moment is his. And everything is a gift. And everything is to be received with thanks and praise. It all is his and goes back to him. Therefore, we praise him and glorify him in the enjoyment of things. Very different than tying our hearts to these things God has created. And that's precisely what she does. She lays out the pleasure And she lays out the material attraction. And she wants God's people to set their hearts on these things and draw away worship from the living God and to worship what is created rather than what the person who created it. So that's how she works. She seduces. The dangerous thing about seduction, as you well know, is it's very very subtle and takes place almost unconsciously and usually over a period of time. You wake up and realize, wow, I have been drinking from the wrong cup. And what you never realized is it started with a simple taste. So that's number three. The prostitute delights in, oh, excuse me, the prostitute seduces the people on earth with her sensualities and her wealth. Four. Now, we might ask the question, before I expound on this, some might say, well, this, this harlot thing, this 
prostitute who's called Babylon the Great. That, that's a, a merely future thing, right? We don't have to worry about that. I mean, that's for the end time, and we're not in the, at the end time. So, so we're not really in danger of her, are we? To which I want to answer that this harlot, this prostitute that's envisioned here in the two and a half chapters has always been seducing the world. And she is here, and she will be yet in the future. Now, this is my opinion, and you don't have to share it. But I believe one of the biggest travesties and mistakes in interpreting this book, this final book of the Bible, is to consign the realities of these things to a merely future truth. As if the beast is merely a future danger, or the harlot is merely a future danger. The travesty in that is people think, okay, well then I don't have anything to fear because that's future. Now I do believe that in the future there will be an escalation, a building, a mounting of this harlot and her beast. There will be a final small season in which God in his providence will allow her and this beast to be unleashed in a way we've never seen before. For a short season, and she will wage, and the beast will wage war on the saints, what we're told. But I want to say to all of us that that does not mean that she does not exist now or that the beast does not exist now in the present tense. And there are a couple of things that would lead me to believe that the beast and the harlot are already dangerous to God's people. One is the fact that this prostitute is the counterpart of the bride of Christ. Now, while the adornment of the bride of Christ may be future in her resurrected state, the bride is something that exists right now. We already are the bride of Christ. In fact, the bride of Christ is composed of both Old Testament and New Testament people, all who have believed and trusted in Christ are God's bride. In other words, the bride has always been. So if the bride has always been, it stands to reason that the harlot who feeds on her blood has always been. Moreover, the very fact that she's given the name of an ancient city that was involved in prostituting God's people would lend credence to the fact that this is a historical thing as well as a future thing. Then on top of that, you have a description. Now, this is intriguing. You have a description of the beast that I think, by way of argument, could also apply to the harlot. The beast is described in this way. Perk your ears up here for, for something that sounds familiar. He has a vision of the beast, and the angel says this. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And it's repeated again at the very end, where it says, it, this beast, was and is not, and is to come. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because there are multiple times in this book of Revelation where that statement, slightly amended, is applied to the Lord, who was, and is, and is to come. Only here it seems to be a parody of Satan himself, who thinks himself divine, who thinks of himself as the was, is, and is to come. But he's not. Certainly he was, 
but he is not, which is probably an allusion to the fact that he has been stripped of his power to accuse and condemn God's people by way of the cross. In other words, he has already been stripped of authority, and authority in one or two particular ways, to condemn God's people and to accuse God's people. That has been taken away. He no longer exercises that kind of power, although he still has influence over us or in our world. That's probably behind the is not. Point being, he was. He's been there from the beginning. He is, although in a muted way, and he will be. So if the beast is something that was and in some un taking out his teeth is what I'm thinking of here, um, without accusation and without control and condemnation is, and yet will be, that it stands to reason that the, the harlot who rides on the back of the beast also is something that was and is and will be. Now what that says and should say to all of us, I recognize, by the way, that this doesn't penetrate the ears of everybody, but I hope that those who have the Spirit of God in them who have ears to hear will hear that she is a present and real danger. She's not some merely future threat. She's already here. And I firmly believe that the New Testament believers in the first century would have seen the beast. In fact, they did. They saw the beast as the power and the might of Rome crushing the Christians in the circus in Rome. And they understood this is the beast, the evil one crushing God's bride. Or when they saw the alignment between economics and pagan worship, so that as a businessman it was difficult for you to engage in business without offering foreign worship. To know that that's the harlot and she's seducing us or she's attempting to seduce us. That that's how they saw these realities as a present reality. This book was not just written for some future generation. It was written for us and them. These are present realities right here, right now. So that a Christian living in Uzbekistan who finds himself in prison or a pastor who is put to death by way of capital punishment, should see that exercise of state power as nothing less than the state of the, the face of the beast. And any attempt to seduce through material wealth or, or giving something to compromise is nothing less than the seduction of the harlot. And if you can see in those categories, it gives us eyes to see the world around us and see that we are surrounded by an enemy and that this life is warfare. Most Christians don't see things this way because, again, we misread this book. It's future, so I don't need to worry about it. Meanwhile, God's people are devoured. I should say the visible church is devoured. And the last statement here, the last of the five, and the whole purpose of this vision is to show her end. On the one hand, it shows us that she's a danger to God's people. She's a seductress, gives us eyes to see. But at the end, we find that this prostitute who seduces the earth, the nations, the kings, the merchants, and the sailors, a.k.a. all of humanity, who is not written in the Lamb's book of life, in the end, the prostitute and those who drink from her cup will drink from the wrath of the Lamb. I asked you a question a few moments ago. How would you feel in terms of earthly relationship if you saw somebody delightfully drinking the blood of your bride? 
because that is a very real picture of this image. The bride that Christ loves. The bride that Christ chose from the foundation of the world, which is why his bride is secure. The bride that he poured out his blood for. The bride that he walks with through history. And the bride that he will adorn. The bride that is the object of his immeasurable sacrificial love. At the end, when the groom returns, nothing less than, and I don't even think you can overstate this, all hell will be unleashed. And that when that happens, and this prostitute is devoured, and she is burned, and she is destroyed, all heaven will break forth in praise. Which is why you have this section at the very end of the vision. When it says there, I'll pick up at verse 2, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That when, this is the next vision, when the vision of Christ coming back on the white horse with the name King of Kings inscribed upon him, and he slays the nations, it it will be done so in absolute fury. And then a different kind of blood will flow. Because he will take out his vengeance upon the nations and upon this prostitute that has fed itself upon the precious right of Christ. And all who have drunk from her cup. I mean, even as this vision is introduced, it's it's an invitation to come see the destruction of the prostitute. Now, that should have one of two effects on us. On the one hand, it should be a warning to us, all of us. If it's true that she is the counterpart, satanic counterpart to the bride, if she delights in consuming God's people, if she is the seductress who uses the promise, the deceitful promise of pleasures and wealth to seduce people of the earth. And in the end, if she receives the wrath of the Lamb, then the simple question is, do you want to be anywhere near near her? Do you want to even sip from her cup? So the vision serves as a warning for all of God's people. Don't have any part in her. In fact, that is in the very middle of this two and a half chapter vision, that is the moral mandate to God's people who have a spirit. Come out from her. This is the pleading of the Lamb. Come out from her, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Come out from her. Don't have anything to do from her. Treat her as you would Medusa. Don't even look in her eyes. Treat her like you would on the Titanic. Get as far away from that that ship as you can, otherwise you go down. You get sucked right down to destruction. Stay completely away from this person who wants to seduce you. And on the contrasting side, 
Maintain your loyalties and your faithfulness to the Lamb who loves you and gave his life for you, has written your names down. He's the one who really loves you. He's the one who died for you. He will secure you and he will bring you into an eternal home. Don't fall for the false stuff that's not going to work or satisfy or secure your soul. Now, you can apply this on a number of different levels, a cultural level, church level, or even an individual level. Like on a cultural level, it just haunts me to realize that we, all of us in this room, we arguably live in the most wealthy nation on planet Earth and potentially that has ever been seen. A culture that thrives on and worships at the altar of pleasure and money. That's just the truth. I don't even think I need to convince you of that. You know, it comes right down to business. It's the bottom line. Oftentimes, even in marriage, what dissolves it is the bottom line of wanting something more. That everything revolves around the want of pleasure and the want of more stuff. That's our culture. Which means if our brothers and sisters in Uzbekistan are facing the beast, we're definitely facing the harlot here. The way that the evil one is getting his way into the life of our culture is through our wealth and through the seductiveness of it. And that's what the, the, the evil one has used throughout the history of God's people to seduce. I have something for you. You, you get the short end of the stick again. God not give you everything you want. Well, I have a better way for you. I was just, yesterday I was on, a, on the CNN website and I was just reading some of the news and I was interested in some of the election turnouts and I came across this thing. It was, a, it was the conclusion of a poll that was taken two Tuesdays ago regarding what was the most important issue at the voting booths. In other words, it was taken as people were leaving. And I remember reading this and I just thought, wow. Now one could just read this and not see anything more in it. Just like, well, yeah, the economy's stupid. But this is what it said. I read this and it said, the economy just isn't the most important issue to the voters this year. It's roughly twice as important to them as the other top issues of concern combined. Now I know the economy is important. We need to put food on the table. We need to pay our mortgages. That's why Jesus said, hey, pray. You know, ask for your daily bread. But ask and recognize it all comes from him. Not from Uncle Sam. But, I mean, I just, I thought about that for a moment. It's not only the import, most important issue, but it's roughly two times the most important issue over all other issues combined. Issues of the disintegration of family and marriage, the the fact that we have mothers stabbing their children, the fact that people are getting shot in our own neighborhoods, or abortion, or the, the rest of the litany of issues that ultimately will bring upon this nation the wrath of God. And we're worried about the economy more than all of those other things. That is a statement of the heart of our culture. That's what we worship. That's why we vote and what we vote for. She is at work. 
It's all around us, and I hope you have the eyes to see. She wants to drink your blood. Sounds like, sounds bad. <laughs> and it's the, 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 the seduction even from a church level. I mean, when we're willing to sacrifice sexual integrity for the sake of political correctness, we're sipping from her cup as a church. When we're willing to sacrifice biblical conviction about the supremacy and exclusivity of salvation in Jesus alone to be more popular or publicly acceptable, we are sipping from her cup. And when we're willing to delete the name of Jesus and Christ from our ministries so as to gain greater revenues and donations than we are sipping from her cup. And those subtleties and seductions are all around us. I know. I feel them. And so do you. What will you sell out for? Will you sell Jesus' name under the bus because you're afraid it will make you unpopular? You're sipping from her cup. See, that's the, when it gets right down to the individual level, you got to be recognized. She's whispering to you every day. She whispers in commercials and she calls forth your already fallen inward part that wants something else. Most of us don't have ears to hear her. That's the prostitute. She says to you, you want a husband and God hasn't given you one yet? Well, didn't you get the short end of the stick? I have a better way for you. And if that better way does not look to God as the author of a husband for you or circumvents his revealed will for you and you take her shortcut, you have sipped from her cup. You want a relationship? Relationships are good. Desire to have that special someone. She whispers in your ear, do you think God's really going to give that to you? Hand me your virginity, and I'll give you somebody. And you give it, and you sip from her cup. And what you don't realize is you're sipping poison. And the promise turns out to be a mirage, and you find yourself miserable. You want a better standard of living? God's given you the short end of the stick. But you know what? If you work seven days a week and neglect the gathering together of God's people, I'll give you what you want, a better standard of living. And when you give in to that whisper, you sip from her cup. She's all around us, my friends. And I hope that you'll see that she is deluding people around us and she whispers to all of us. And I hope that you'll recognize that her end is sure and she will be crushed and all who drink of her cup. So come out from among her and turn your eyes to the Lamb of God who wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life for eternity. To the one who poured out his blood for you. 
to the only one who can be an eternal security and refuge and stronghold for your soul and who stands on the end of history as the exalted and glorified groom waiting for his bride to adorn her with his own glory and with his beauty and give her the fullness of his eternal presence. That's what we're supposed to live for. And I hope more than anything this vision will cause you or stir you to turn your back on whatever's competing with the Lord because it's not supposed to be a competition. That's drinking from her cup. And in turn, in grace to say, I want to love Christ and Christ alone because he first loved me and he's better than life. That's what this vision should do. So I hope this morning, we're, gonna, we're coming to a, take a cup this morning, a different cup. Her cup's poison, offering you something that will never really materialize, or if it does, it'll be short-lived. We're going to partake of the love of the, 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 the cup of Christ, his blood, which was poured out for us to be his bride, to cleanse us. And it's not appropriate for those of us who are the bride of Christ, if we find ourselves compromised, worshiping at other altars, looking for satisfaction or looking for security in anything other than the Lord, to drink of this cup. So before we come to communion, again, a cup that looks back to what he did for us and looks forward to the day that we drink it with him anew as our groom and we as his perfected bride. Will you take a moment to examine your own heart and life and ask yourself, are, these, are there areas that I have sipped from the cup that I'm worshiping at two altars? And if so, will you not only confess it, but ask the Lord to give you a heart of contrition, of joyful brokenness, of, of knowing that when we confess from the heart in utter and complete brokenness, and we say with David, be merciful to me according to your steadfast love, that his grace will provide the strength for us to look towards him with greater measures of love and fidelity and to turn our back on the things that are seducing God's people. So we spend a few moments before we come Asking yourself, am I sipping from the cup and where is it? And am I willing to turn my back on it? And then come and take of the cup of Christ who gave his life for you and waits at the end of history as the resurrected and exalted groom of this bride. Go ahead and take a few minutes and then we will...